publishing connection to Science Night. Please stand by. Welcome back to the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me tonight is Steffi. Hey. And, of course, Jason. Hello. Tonight, we've got some space headlines, a quick update from my favorite paleo pathway, strange things one researcher found in the fridge, and we're going to finish up with a conversation with Dr. Jennifer Vertolin from the Wild Connection podcast. But first, the news. So we do have a story that we're going to do in a little bit more depth, but I want to start with some headlines to get you some quick science facts. The James Webb Space Telescope has been delayed again, and this is turning into like a little bit of a running joke, but its new potential launch date is, according to NASA, no earlier than 1224. And... uh, you know, if they push it back to 1225, they got they got to watch out for Santa because we don't want to interfere with that flight. So uh, I guess my only question to you guys, is: do you think this is ever going to launch? It'll launch. They'll find a date. Sometimes you hit these delays and you just kind of work through it. Science is unpredictable at times. And then you throw in a pandemic. So... And and a Butterfingers uh, a Butterfingers employee just dropping a te- telescope. Ouch! I would be that yeah. guy, for sure. Sure, I would. We've probably all done something <laughs> kind of like that. Maybe not of that magnitude, but you know we're human. Is this the reason that you're in fusion and not fission? Is that what you're telling us right now? The oopsies are a little less like uh, world ending. Hey, if you look at statistics for safety. Fission is safer than any form of power where we get energy right now. So just, just putting it out there. That's right. Doesn't mean we don't have to account for, you know, safety, but. Speaking of fusion, the Parker Solar Probe, launched in 2018, has touched the sun's atmosphere. We don't really have a lot more to tell you because even the NASA press release about this was like, we did it. This is great. And I'm sure there's going to be science that's attached to this but for right now we're just telling you that this has happened and we're all applauding i'm excited about it yeah me too yeah no i'm totally excited first time we'll get measurements that close to the sun right it's pretty pretty exciting that it also like didn't melt so yeah that's that's a good sign yet yeah sure (laughs) it's (laughs) pre-melted right exactly i mean maybe it was sent up pre-melted right to just prevent it from melting well, too quickly i mean they did launch at night so they took some precautions that's fair that's fair right launching at night that's good and our last headline is just kind of a tease for a future episode recent analysis at the Liatoli site in tanzania has led to some pretty amazing revelations and that is all i'm going to tell you about it because we're gonna have former guest turned returning champion ellie mcnutt on a future episode to tell you all about it she was the lead author in the nature article that published recently so i figured why not get her to come back on the podcast and actually tell you real information than just me trying to regurgitate an article so stay tuned for that sometime in january now We all keep kind of a hodgepodge of stuff in our fridge, from the dangerously, violently expired condiments to the aspirational vegetables that you will never consume. I mean, really, why did you buy that much kale? Like, no one is going to eat that much kale. What were you thinking? Rarely is there something that changes our understanding of the past, but that is exactly what happened to a team from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario when DNA that had been in a freezer for 10 years or so was analyzed and ended up pushing the extinction of the woolly mammoth in North America up by about 5,000 years. So this happened about 5,000 years ago, so firmly when there were lots of people in North America doing people things, this is pretty incredible that you can just stumble upon something in your own freezer and learn this much about the ancient past of North America. So what do we think about this? We're going to rummage through our freezers and try to try to solve some ancient mysteries. Well, can I point out, first of all, that they don't make freezers like they used to make freezers because there's no way a freezer made today would last 5,000 years. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, 
this is exactly how science works in many fields, right? Just a fortunate happenstance being at the right place at the right time. Speaking about Dr. McNutt, uh, who will be coming back to talk about um, footprints, right? Those footprints, and you've told this story on the podcast before, James, you know, were found because researchers were throwing elephant dung balls at each other and somebody happened to look down on the ground and see a footprint, a fossilized footprint, right? Things just happen. This reminds me a lot of what it was like from my graduate school experience because I spent uh, a lot of time doing comparative anatomy dissection work and oftentimes that was driven by what did we find in the freezer. So I wasn't surprised at all to hear that that's how the specimens were procured for this particular research. What shocked me was that they were able to confirm the serious impact of climate change so much more than had been um, sort of hypothesized in the past. One of the major driving forces, um, at least hypothesized driving forces for the extinctions of these great large land mammals like giant sloths and bison and so on and so forth was human hunting, right? But it seems that from the DNA that they're finding in the soil here that that climate change was having a much larger impact on the abundance of these species than had been previously thought. Um, because, you know, you can't really get a, a great sense of um, sort of the numbers of, of individuals in a given population of bison, for example, just from looking at the archaeological record or the paleontological record, um, because not everything fossilizes, not everything preserves. And so it's hard to know exactly how much there is. That said, the abundance of DNA in soil, right, can be tracked as a pretty good way of saying, okay, look, this is what's being left behind. And, and uh, maybe it's not the bones or the skeletons or, you know, other remnants, but the DNA from these animals is changing in quantity uh, in the soil samples through time in a rate that's very different than what they thought. So I thought that was really cool. Well, I'm going to tie this back into climate change, too, because you mentioned how it can affect species, right? But also how it can impact science. Because climate change right now, it's melting the permafrost, where these DNA soil samples were frozen and kept preserved for so long. And as this melts, we'll lose access to that valuable information well, and our climate that we currently inhabit, too. Right. And furthermore, you know, we are releasing bacteria and viruses that have been frozen in the permafrost that we haven't known as a species for, you know, 10,000 years or however long, you know, now they're starting to be back in circulation or could have the potential to be back in circulation. And that's potentially dangerous for our, you know, survival as a species as well. I don't think we need another pandemic, right? We, th this is plenty. And uh, we also don't need like an ancient virus pandemic because that doesn't sound fun. No. Right. In fact, we already have, you know, significant populations of prairie dogs in Colorado suffering from the bubonic plague, which is a really nice segue into what we're going to talk about with Dr. Jennifer Vertolin a little bit later on in this podcast. Talk about a wild connection. Brilliant. <laughs> and what uh, one one thing I do want to like quickly circle back on because, you know, we're doing Zoom and we got to circle back. And uh, Jason, you were kind of talking about how we loved to project our own failings as mm. a people onto the uh, early, early Native Americans on this continent by saying it was it was overhunting and mismanagement. Do you think that's what they were kind of getting at too by also including the the ancient horse DNA, like? Because this animal that was better able to adapt still exists, there's more evidence that it was definitely not overhunting because they would have both been been being hunted at the same time at the same rate. Potentially. Yeah, what I thought was cool about that is it kind of gave a natural experiment a control, right? You don't always have that in, in a natural experiment. You have something that you're observing either now versus previously in that same environment or you know you've got a fractured environment and you're looking at what's happening in this group versus the other group and you don't always have perfect controls this was a really good genetic control um, to test the climate change hypothesis as opposed to making climate change the de facto explanation because the hunting hypothesis maybe didn't hold up right and so they were they were actively testing that hypothesis which i thought was pretty interesting and it also 
firmly puts uh, horse evolution in North America. I think, you know, you raise an interesting point, and that is that, you know, we often think about horses being introduced onto this continent, right? Well, that's modern horses. But when we look at the fossil record, we can see the evolution of horses happening here in North America. The same thing is true for primates. The origin of primates is here in North America. They went everywhere else after that. They're not here in natural populations any longer, but the earliest primates all evolved here on this continent and then migrated out. You know, another thing that that we don't often think about. Fun stuff that can get skewed if the the wrong people cherry pick the wrong information and throw evolution into North American context. So, so... Just just remember what we're saying is like ancient, ancient, ancient primate lines and not necessarily directly human uh, evolution. Yeah, we're talking on the order of, you know, 60 million years ago, right after the um, extinction of the dinosaurs. Yes. That's when primates sort of took off. And so we're talking at that, yeah. you know, Cretaceous tertiary boundary, right? About 65 mm-hmm. million years ago. We're not talking 6,000 years ago, right? This is a long history that we're talking about. Because the one thing that we do not want to start on the Science Night podcast is like Piltdown Van version 2.0. And I know that's not not what you're trying to do. I mean, (laughs) what I think is important is that, you know, that actually reflects the fact that, that, you know, a lot of people don't think of primates, humans as primates, right? Think of humans as humans, right? But humans are primates. And so you could spin what I was saying to make a very different story than what I was actually saying. So it's a good point. I'm just impressed what you can find in your freezer and yet also totally understandable because as a scientist, you collect so much information that you can't process all at once. Sure. Right. It's just amazing. And like every scientist has their version of what this freezer is, right? It could be like an inbox that you look at periodically uh, or a Google Drive that you're like, oh. I remember my login for this now. I didn't really think about this until just now when I was sort of reminiscing not very fondly about my minus 80 freezer that failed um, at the beginning of the pandemic and I lost everything that was in it, right? We might not know the story here, an important story about climate change and um, maybe early North American populations not being as responsible for their extinction, for animal extinctions or species extinctions as we once thought simply because that freezer did not fail. Sure. That's mm-hmm. crazy to me. And giving scientists the space and edu- you know universities the space to explore creativity and curiosity that may not be directly funded by your grant but you know just a little bit adjacent to it you can find some really interesting things that you weren't necessarily looking for. That's a bigger discussion about sort of what is possible with a National Science Foundation grant versus what's possible with the National Institutes of Health grant and how those mm-hmm. how those institutes are structured very differently in terms of what they're doing, which I think we should talk about at some point on the podcast because it's really interesting. Yeah. But you're right. There needs to be more space for that kind of science for science sake, right? Let's follow this lead and see where it takes us for pure discovery rather than you know, a directed line of inquiry that you already kind of know what that outcome is going to be before you get that money. A long forgotten sample leading to a new discovery is a wild connection. And after this quick break, we have another one for you. Our conversation with Dr. Jen Verdelin of the Wild Connections podcast is up next. Can you hear me? Do you smell the foul corruption? Things get a little strange here. And what about me? Like, really strange. Grotesque stench of rotten flesh. Yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast. I'm only just starting. Just search, and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello. Come here. And welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, Assistant Professor of Practice in the School of Natural Resources and the Environment at the University of Arizona. Jennifer is an internationally recognized animal behavior expert. Her research focuses on social and mating behavior, social networks, and conservation. She is author of several popular science books, including Wild Connections, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tell Us About Human Relationships. She is also host of Wild Connection, the podcast, which focuses on many of the same questions. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on to the podcast today. Welcome to Science Night. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. I am so excited to be here. 
We are really excited to have you here as well. So I wanted to ask you, your interest in animal behavior sort of taken you all over the world to study and observe animals in all sorts of habitats. What is it that drew you to this work and what was your path to get there? My path was scenic. Let's start with that, right? Um, it was definitely not linear. But, you know, as a kid, I, I always loved animals. I wanted to, like, be with them. And much to the dismay of many of my family members who did not share my affection for four-legged, two-legged, no-legged creatures, Mm -hmm. eight-legged creatures. Um, But, you know, at that time, it was like, if you like animals, you you must want to be a veterinarian. And I explored that option. And for listeners, and maybe you might not know about fainting goats, or maybe you do know about fainting goats. I actually do know about fainting goats, but I'm not sure how many people know about fainting goats. So tell us about fainting goats. Well, so essentially they're these fainting goats and, and, and they're given this name because when they're startled in any slight way, they basically just pass out. I feel like it's a hyperactive fight or flight, you know, thanatosis, right? Uh, which sure, is sure. playing dead, pos- playing possum as we think about it in the colloquial way. And so while I was not startled and passed out, I did pass out frequently to the point where my vet that I worked with suggested that I find an alternate career path. Then I, I sort of explored other things and I ultimately came down to realizing I wanted to sit with animals and figure out why they're doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And after reading some books about people who were doing that, I realized it was a job. And then that just led to oh what do you need to do to do this job right you need degrees you need on paper permission to sit in the forest Mm -hmm. and just chase butterflies and watch animals and that just kind of i was really interested in gorillas and and primates other primates and predators and instead i ended up studying prey the thing that everything eats which is prairie dogs initially and i've never looked back and i think that i feel so fortunate i get to basically hang out and and watch other animals and and i include people in that now as well and try to understand what they're doing why they're doing it and how i can help them yeah it's so interesting how just being in a situation as a graduate student or as someone who is impressionable still at the early age of their career or you know even of their career interests and just at the right time right place you start studying one thing you never thought you would study i have a similar experience when i was working on my phd i went down to costa rica to do field work which is something i had never done before i was very much a bone and muscle dissection let's learn some anatomy hardcore laboratory stuff. I was not a field biologist by any stretch and I wouldn't still wouldn't call myself a field biologist, but I have done several field seasons. Okay. And and so, you know, at least I understand that it's not really my my thing, but I get that it's I understand the allure because it, there's something really special about being out in that environment. But I, when I was in Costa Rica, we were down there to study um, monkeys, particularly we were studying howling monkeys and we were looking at the behavior that was related to feeding. But what interested me was not that end of the animal at all. It was the the tail. At one point of my career, I probably had published more than anybody else on monkey tails. I um, see. I thought you were going to go somewhere else with the other end of the monkey, but uh, um, <laughs> I did. I was like, oh, well, I've encountered quite a lot of that as well, right? Oh, uh, uh, sure. Right, for sure. <laughs> uh, but But that's really fascinating because... I would look at the howler monkey and probably not think of the tail all that much other than, you know, wow, look at how they can use that tail. But I wouldn't, no questions would emerge about the tail. It would all be, you know, okay, why is that particular monkey like arguing with this monkey or spending all their time with that monkey? Sure. Um, Yeah. Wow. That's really, that's really cool that you got that opportunity. I would say that I have even less experience in the lab, uh, you know, relative to muscles and bones. And I'm fascinated with bones and I collect bones, but I opted out of all dissections in my undergraduate career. I refused to participate. Uh, (laughs) And 
so I have less experience than you do in the field. So I can't even be considered a proper lab scientist. So that's an interesting point. Um, and, and actually, there was a point I wanted to make about this. And we'll get back to that in a second. But um, but you raise an interesting point, And that is that I really didn't have much experience with the section at all until I took my first human anatomy course. So one of the very first organisms I ever dissected was a human donor. Wow. Right? Very different. Most people don't come at it that way, right? I mean, most people have done a frog or a shark or something else, right? Most of my work had been with humans until I started training in comparative anatomy. So my question was actually really, though, directed at what about prairie dogs fascinated you so much? Because, you know, I just, like, like you said, you wouldn't think anything about the tail of a howling monkey, but I wouldn't think much about social interaction in prairie dogs. What is it that, that you're passionate about? What is it that drew you to that particular research program and questions? Well, it's, so it's interesting. It was by accident. I had always wanted to study primates and I did fall madly in love with the prairie dogs. So I'm happy to tell you about what was so magical and what still captures me about them. But initially it was kind of not really about the prairie dog. I wanted to study predators or primates. And since I didn't get with somebody that was studying primates, I ended up with somebody who was studying prairie dogs and they were studying the language system of prairie dogs, which is quite sophisticated. They give a particular alarm call to a predator and it varies very specifically with the predator. It's not just sort of in the air and on the ground, it's coyote, dog, fox. Mm -hmm. They're very different. They have a similar structure because they're all canines but they discriminate between whether it's a coyote, a fox, or a dog. Same thing with a hawk versus an eagle versus a raven versus apparently a great blue heron once. So I was interested in predators. So I thought, well, I don't care much about this little prairie dog thing. I care about what's going to eat the prairie dog. Mm -hmm. So my initial program of study was studying predation in prairie dogs. But I became so impressed with them. First of all, they were just so attuned to their environment that rarely did a predator surprise them. I got surprised more by a predator than they did. And that was simply because I wasn't paying attention to what they were doing. If I followed what the prairie dogs were doing, I knew I could tell you coyote is coming from the left. I couldn't tell you how fast it was coming. They could tell you how fast it's coming, but I couldn't they groomed each other they played with each other and i started noticing certain kind of clicks you know and mm-hmm. that of course is their social group but i still wasn't thinking about them as something to study i was still in this romantic relationship with primates sure sure and so for when i got to my phd i worked with somebody who studied capuchin monkeys in argentina and i'm like that's it i got it i'm, I'm ready to study primates i got to argentina And I realized I'm a prairie dog. I prefer open grasslands. I like to know Mm -hmm. what predators are coming. I was so uncomfortable in the rainforest. And then on top of that, as you know, as a scientist, when you have a question, one, it has to be a good question. And two, you have to find the right organism to answer that question. Mm -hmm. And, And so you either tailor your question to the organism or you have a question and you got to find the right animal in my case animal to look at that question and the question i had was simply not appropriate for capuchin monkeys and it was inspired by prairie dogs and what i saw with their social behavior i wanted to know why did why do they form groups you know what drives social grouping why do we hang Mm -hmm. out with each other and there are a lot of thoughts about this and so i was going to test those on capuchin monkeys and then that didn't work so i thought oh you know what? I really kind of do miss those prairie dogs. Right. And prairie dogs, don't they have elaborate systems of habitats they that they're do. living in? And maybe even more complex because you can't see a lot of it. Oh than, my gosh. Than capuchins, which by the way, capuchins have a very complicated habitat structure and they are among the sharpest among primates at navigating their micro environments. So this is not to denigrate capuchins by any stretch, but prairie dogs are fascinating in this regard, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so they live, you know, they live uh, generally in open grasslands and they burrow. Now you're talking about a a ground squirrel, right? That is maybe like two pounds, three pounds at the most. That's if they're well-fed and it's a good year and it's the end of the year. They burrow. I I actually excavated an abandoned colony. I needed a pickaxe and that only got me to two feet before you got to calcium. That's when you got to calcium carbonate. So Mm -hmm. that's like cement, right? Right. I then needed a backhoe. 
to get through the earth that they dug with their little paws. That's it. It's incredible to me that they can just dig four and a half feet deep in these environments where I still have a neck injury from that pickaxe hitting mm-hmm. and, you know, boom. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay. And, and here they are small and they, you know, create these burrows. They maintain these burrows. They even adjust them. Like, let's say you're not friends anymore, or you, you take over a new part of a territory. You can backfill a burrow. They don't necessarily collapse it, right? But they backfill it. So you can't come here anymore. It's like those hotel room doors, you know, that Mm -hmm, there was a door that connects and now it doesn't, Mm -hmm. but the door is still there. And so they do this, they have lanes where they can turn around inside. They have little latrines because they're quite fastidious, right? So they, Mm -hmm. they put all their their poop in one little spot. Uh, they have nests and, you know, they're very elaborate. They have escape hatches. So they also have false entrances. You think it's an entrance, but it goes nowhere and they maintain them and you can see them from space. Satellite imagery will show you prairie dog towns. That's That's crazy. Wow, I, I had no know. Idea. They provide so much habitat for burrowing owls. And I mean, I found a tiger salamander. I think it was a tiger salamander in a burrow. You know, all the, you know, mm-hmm. voles and, and kangaroo rats and all kinds of birds are associated with prairie dog towns, rattlesnakes, gopher snakes. You sit on a prairie dog town and the world comes to you. That is so cool. Wow. And they have words for the world. You know, they respond. They're very talkative. There's always like, there's always something happening on a prairie dog town. Man, it sounds like the place to be. It is. It's the happening place to be. And that doesn't even talk about the relationships they form with each other, how Mm. they help each other. I trapped and marked them. And, And while I'm now working on facial recognition, so I don't have to do that, Boy, I'll tell you, either your enemy got in a trap and you took the opportunity to bully them or your friend got in a trap and you were desperately trying to help them. I saw both of those things emerge. And then you had some prairie dogs that were just like, cool, I'm in a trap. I got some good food. This is awesome. And, you know, others that were clearly the nervous Nellies of the community. And and so I started to see personality differences in these prairie dogs. So did you notice anything about different personalities interacting with different personalities, right? Did different personalities tend to cluster into groups or, you know, were they constructed of multiple types of personalities and sort of every group has to have that subset, right? Think about like a strip mall within a zoned area, right? Where it's like, well, you got to have one dry cleaner and you got to have one Asian takeout food place, you know, something like that, right? And an anchor store, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. I love that you asked that question. That's actually my current line of inquiry. I wondered a few things. One is, is personality sort of optimally distributed within a group so that the group functions cohesively. You can't have everybody trying to be a dominant personality and everybody being a kind of, you know, wimpy, easygoing personality. Maybe you need some range of personality Mm -hmm. types for everybody to, to work together, but that hasn't really been answered. The other thing I'm curious about is flexibility in their personality, meaning you know, when we think about humans, and, and this is usually what leads me to asking these questions about other species, is I think, okay, you know, my personality might be bold in some contexts, but put me in front of the president of the University of Arizona, right? I might tone it down, you know, a touch. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and so, so this ability to modulate the expression of your personality, depending on what group you're in, and being able to kind of read the room, if you will. I wonder when prey dogs move from one group to another, because you do get movement, do they take with them their bold personality and they crash into that new group like, hey, I'm here? Or is are they filling a, a space or a role? Is it flexible? And, and I don't have the answers to those questions, but those are my current sure. questions. And what I do know is that there was obviously groups that had maybe seven or eight different prairie dogs and they played favorites. Like you always would see some prairie dogs together and they weren't necessarily related. They weren't necessarily sisters or brothers or, mm-hmm. or cousins or half siblings. It might be just two unrelated females who spend their time together and don't spend time. They don't groom. They're not 
in as close proximity, even though another female or male might be in their social unit, right? So, so they form cliques like high school. <laughs> so oh, it just high school, it always comes back, right? It always it does. does. It always comes back to everything you ever learned about social interaction, right? And with those awkward phases of high school. Because it never stops, right? <laughs> right, right, for sure. You touched on a very important point, and that was the idea of the sort of modulating our behavior in the presence of different company. And so that's, you know, heavily dependent and I'm sure further modulated by the fact that face-to-face -face interactions are different than virtual interactions. So my question for you is, you know, sort of what do you think has happened to people over this pandemic who have been interacting for the most part virtually and unable to read that room, right? How do you think our relationships have been affected by our inability to communicate in large groups face-to-face? -face? I appreciate that question because what it really highlights is the opportunity to talk about how much information gathering we get in the presence of others. That even is not visual information. It can be chemical information. I've always told people, you didn't fall in love at first sight. You, you probably smelled them across the room first. And mm -hmm. then your nose took you there, right? You just didn't know right. your nose took you there. So we get verbal information. We get physical information, not just in appearance, but in mannerisms and mm -hmm. facial movement, which we can get virtually, especially with FaceTime and things like that. We're missing a lot of chemical information. We're missing feedback, that instantaneous feedback that you get in person. So even though we're in a virtual space and we might look at each other, I don't think our brains process information as rapidly when it's with a screen yeah, as sure. when it's with the person in front of you. And as I have recently learned, just a moment of physical contact can tell you so much about what you think or feel about the person you're interacting with and 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 shaking hands is a good example right so i was in scotland and i know we're going to talk about that and i met somebody and instinctively i put my hand out that's what i've done forever as a way of greeting and i i hadn't done it but i don't know why i did for whatever yeah, reason, I right. was motivated in that instance, in that interaction, the person responded, we shook hands. And in making contact with the hands, it was just like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, for and, sure. Like there was just, a, I like this person. I, you know, and we've, we've since talked about how I extended my hand to shake hands and they were shocked, but responded because no one does that anymore. And I said, well, gosh, I figured I wasn't going to lick my hands after I shook your hand. So it's probably safe. Although I've learned that many people unconsciously after they shake someone's hand, sniff it. And they don't That's know that they do it. Crazy. They will deny no it. I've certainly heard that, you know, we touch our face all the time unconsciously, right? And so there's the argument, right? You might lick your face accidentally, right? <laughs> While right. you're trying to eat. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but sniffing your hand after you shake hands with someone, yes, shaking and, hands? I'm not sure what the right grammar is there. I'm not sure either, but I know that a study was done and people were shown video that they did it and they still denied it. Like that's fake news. You must've edited it. There's uh. no way I would sniff my hand after shake, but that is how much we rely on physical present information to make assessments about whether we like someone, whether we really trust someone, right, right. all of these things about whether they're gonna come into our social circle or not. So I think we have lost a lot. And I, I've always thought this, even with romantic relationships, with online dating and, and things sure. like that, it's ripe for deception, ripe for misunderstanding, miscommunication, misattraction and then as soon as you see the person you're like oh you know boy i really enjoyed all our conversations but no right i mean that's an interesting point because one of the most sort of basal attractants is pheromone and i mean that's really what our lizard brains are wired to detect and rightfully so you know there's a lot to be said for that and and that's an interesting point that you raised. I do like wearing a mask. It's been quite freeing <laughs> to feel lack of pressure to maintain a certain you know, facial expression in whatever context. And, and I don't know if that's me being female. It's quite freeing to not have that pressure of smile, being yeah, told sure. all the time to smile when, when I'm just resting. It's okay. I'm, I can not smile. <laughs> right. And the world is still good. So I will say that 
but that hides a lot of information also and, and my ability to get information as well, even if I'm face to face. So let's talk about those face-to-face -face interactions. You just mentioned that you got back from Scotland. You were there for the COP26 conference, which is short for Conference of Parties. And the outcome of this was really the Glasgow Climate Pact, which was agreed to by 197 countries, really as a call to report back next year. That's the basic outcome, right? Report back next year in Egypt at COP27 toward each country's attempts to, to meet the goals of trying to keep 1.5 degrees Celsius alive, right? So what are we talking about here? And how did you get to Scotland? So it's really interesting because, I mean, I had I didn't realize that they met every year. The big one was the Paris Agreement, right, in 2015. That was the one that everybody always refers to. So I'm at University of Arizona, and they have always sent a delegation of observers because uh, they're part of we're Ringo Research, and something non-governmental organization. Darn it, I knew what it was, but it's Ringo. We're cool, we're Ringos. And, <laughs> and so I saw an email come across, which you know how we are sometimes with emails, like a bunch come in and you're just like, that doesn't apply to me, that doesn't, Never mind. delete, delete, yeah, delete, yeah. delete. Just to feel like you've accomplished a lot in a day <laughs> is deleting those emails from your inbox. And yet this one said, are you interested in going to Glasgow COP26? And because it had been so much in the news as this was the do or die, right? This was, we've got to come up with the answer or it's over. So it's ironic that, of course, what happened was, hey, let's talk about it next year. Right, uh, right. But I thought, oh, wow, I didn't know we did this. Let me read this email. And it, it, it simply said, we have a certain number of slots available to go to COP26 and we split them so that people can, we can maximize the number of people that can go, you know, half will go week one, half will go week two, put your name in if you are interested and, and agree right. that you pay for it yourself. <laughs> like uh, we're not, of course. We're not right. paying for you to go. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this. This seems like a historic thing to do. I thought, let me go ahead and put my name in and see what happens. And then I got selected to be part of it for week two. And that was well before, you know, we knew anything that was going to be talked about in various days mm -hmm. or weeks and et cetera. And, and, you know, the COVID situation and whether or not you were going to, you had to basically agree that if you got stuck over there, it was on you. Did you have right. anybody there that you could stay with in case you had to quarantine for 14 days or, and I thought, you know, okay, let me just, I'm going to go for it. And it was very, I'm going to, you know, no offense. I've never been to one before, but, and maybe because of COVID it made it much more challenging, but it was sort of poorly organized and very really? chaotic. Yeah. Mm. And, and maybe a lot of conferences are like that, but Typically, they're fairly, you know where to find things, you know how to get there. There was very weak communication about what, how many COVID tests you needed, what kind of COVID tests. Right. Uh, so the first day was really amazing because it was like six layers of security, multiple showing of COVID tests. You know, everybody had masks, but there was this energy there. It was exciting. And, and I hadn't been around so many people in almost two right. years. So that was overwhelming in and of itself. And then it was really challenging to find out where meetings were happening. You know, I hadn't planned ahead. I just was like, I'm going to go, and I'm going to just be present. And all of a sudden it was like, this is so overwhelming. I don't know where to go. And then there were caps on the rooms. So there was a lot of frustration for people feeling it was not as accessible as previous cops because they put limits on the number of people that could be in a room so there'd be a queue by the time you got to the room that we were interested in joining you know it wasn't that i didn't get to join any but that's sort of the feel was whoa there's like ten thousand people here and and a maze of places to go and no real idea what's happening where oh i found something i want to go oh i can't go it's already full okay Oh, find no. somewhere else to go yeah. and so i ultimately decided that i was going to focus on meeting and talking to as many people as possible and i did attend the panel some of the big takeaways were climate finance was a big topic 
you know, by the time I got there, all the major governments had made their sweeping promises on deforestation and, and carbon emissions without right. plans, actually, for how they were going to do that. Of course, but that's the point of the of the pact, right? Is that they're going to come back next year and sort of be held accountable for the broad sweeping things that they said they were going to do so that everyone can maintain this hope that we can keep carbon emissions low enough that we don't rise globally in temperature above 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, the point there is that I think even most of the world recognizes that that's a very slim hope at this point still, and only if things are enacted immediately, right? And um, so- I Drastically. Guess so anyway, not to interrupt, but I think it's important to point that out, right? That this 1.5 degrees Celsius is still attainable, but only urgently. And to be clear, 1.5 is still bad. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> like, like it's not like, you know, I think sometimes the conversation around it by these governments, oh, if we can just keep everything at 1.5, everything's going to be fine. No, it's still going to be bad. It won't be as bad, but it's still like existentially bad, especially for other you know, certain countries in particular and, sure. and maybe all of us. But but certain countries are going to weather that situation better, which is what a big part of this COP was about was financing and adapting and mitigating for those countries that are disproportionately impacted by the changes that are happening already and are coming, even though they did not create the problem. So how much of COP was focused on things other than humans? For the most part, we're worried about our own species, but our species is so closely intersecting all across the world with all these other species that imbalances in ecosystems can have a drastic effect on our ability to survive. Was there emphasis at all on non-human species at COP26? Yeah, I mean, there was a day that, they, that was a theme for biodiversity and nature and wildlife. And I think that the thought is that if you just protect forests, that's the magic bullet that right. will protect everything. And yet oh, there's a lot of species that don't live in forests mm -hmm. and the continued sort of urban development and urban growth and habitat loss, just because you might stop all deforestation by 2030, which is sort of the big plan. That doesn't mean that we are going to stop the loss of species because one, temperatures are still going to change. Uh, water availability is going to change. Human population growth will add another 3 billion people by 2050. I just think that that was sort of the default. That was my impression that, hey, if we, right. like, our big focus is we're going to just stop deforestation. We're not going to think about cohabitating. And I mean, I talk about this all the time in our own, you know, in the United States, we have HOAs that demand monoculture grass lawns that are devoid of dandelions, which bumblebees love incidentally. And, and yet what if we just all planted like native habitats in our, and all this green space that we have in front of our house and in back of our house, which would create all this wildlife and habitat and probably help air pollution and manage temperature all of these types of things, but we can't because we have this micro organization in our community right. that has dictated some standard of, of, I don't know what they think, beauty, I suppose, that everyone must follow that's actually detrimental to local species in any given community. And you can just replicate that all over. I mean, I think there are some efforts to uh, forest cities are one and biophilic cities like the mayor of Austin was at COP26 when we were talking about the built environment, because how can we then provide habitat in the built environment for species to promote wildlife conservation and biodiversity? Sure. So it was there, but it wasn't like we've really got to step it up to save species. It was like, hey, we really got to step it up to save ourselves. Right. And I guess there's a good reason for that. The narrative that we have here is that, you know, we're destroying the earth. And that is true. But really what we're doing is destroying the earth for us. The earth is not going away. The earth will eventually recover. It's just, do we want to be part of that recovery or do we want to be a part of the past? And so we're really talking about 
um, saving our species. I guess I'm not surprised that the focus is only or mostly on humans. Um, I'm just a little bit more surprised that there isn't more of that interconnectedness um, with the rest of the ecosystem in these efforts, right? I mean, you point out that deforestation is the number one goal, stopping deforestation. And that's probably really important for our species. Any of the other species that are saved by that or potentially helped by that are just the collateral I wouldn't call them damage in that case, right? But um, collateral beneficiaries, I right? Suppose. Beneficiaries, exactly. All right, I point that out because I want to know sort of what are the effects, bringing this full circle, of climate change on your prairie dog populations, right? How are they? How are they faring? Well, so they're having trouble on a couple fronts, and I also just want to, uh, before I forget, point out that oceans were present for the first time at COP twenty six. So, oh, okay, good. So we've grown, right? We're including oceans right. now as like a really important area, but for prairie dogs, the biggest thing is going to be drought in the immediate future. I mean, we already have had habitat loss due to urban uh, urbanization, and that's exploding currently in Colorado, where mm -hmm. the black-tailed prairie dog is. Disease is another one. And, and so you can see these parallels between their lives and our lives. So as climate changes, the incidence of disease is spreading. They actually get plague. And there are some populations that might be showing some signs of resistance after almost 200 years. If the generation time is two years, what is that? Like almost 100 generations. Right. You're, get, you're getting some pockets of prairie dogs that are surviving plague events and showing some resistance but you know as climate changes and creates more favorable conditions in new places where say prairie dogs haven't experienced plague at this point because the habitat wasn't conducive for the fleas but now that changes and the range of the flea can expand that's also happening for people by the way with plague mm -hmm. incidentally the, the incidence of plague will go up and is shifting uh, globally as well we're seeing a resurgence. There was a big plague outbreak in Madagascar a couple of years ago. That's devastated many populations, including the right. my my study animal in particular, the Gunnison's prairie dog. There's very few of them left. So you've got urban sprawl, and now you can add drought to the mix. They don't drink right. water, but they get all their water from the roots, shoots, leaves, seeds of the things that they eat. So when you have a really strong drought year, they just can't get enough food and they can't get enough food that contains enough water in it. Some are going to make it and most won't. And this, you know, and they only typically breed once a year and they have one litter. So they're going to have, you know, four to six pups. And of those, maybe 50% make it past year one. Mm. So they're essentially just replacing themselves. They're not actually right. having population growth. And so a, a huge hit creates a big impact. And so it's not just prairie dogs, it's happening for pelagic seabirds. And right, right. you notice a slow decline, slow decline, but all of a sudden they'll, you get one bad year and, and it's, it's done. It's an interesting point because, you know, climate is changing enough that habitats are changing dramatically. And it actually brings up the question about what do we consider an invasive species anymore, right? When species have to migrate, are their home ranges just to be able to survive? Is it really invasion at that point or is it just survival? Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, you, you've got some hardcore ecologists, you know, hardliners that are like, it's not native and it's invasive. It needs to go and, and spend all this money. But, but that species might actually be filling a space in that ecosystem. It may be the one that can fill that service because the native species isn't going to survive Mm -hmm. the, the change that's coming or that is happening. And some species can't expand their ranges. They're so specialized. Like I think of um, uh, mountains where at the highest altitudes, you, you have species that are like the pika that are well adapted to those environments, but those environments are getting warmer and, and drier and they're changing. They're actually getting better for the species just below the pika and the pika can't go up any higher. The mountaintop is there and right. it's just not going up. So it will disappear. That is the way it works. And I think that not being honest in our conversations about that allows this sort of denial. And, and we have this weird kind of cognitive dissonance. We love the honeybee. We want to save the honeybee. It's not native. And the right. only reason we love it is because it makes us blueberries. 
Well, this is giving us a lot to think about our place in the world and our place in our ecosystems in particular. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you, Jennifer. Thank you so much for coming on to Science Night with us. I was hoping maybe before we leave, you could tell um, our audience where they can find you on social media. Oh yeah, thank you, Jason, for having me. This has been a real treat. So you can find me, uh, my website is jenniferverdalen.com. And then you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at real Dr. Jen, cause I'm a real doctor, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and um, no, really there was someone else called Dr. Jen. Don't follow that person, follow real Dr. Jen. And then of course the podcast is Wild Connection and it's hosted by Podbean, but you can also find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, you know, all those platforms. That, that are so wonderful out there that host our, our podcasts. And yeah, so I hope I'm going to get so to have much. you on mine. Oh, for sure. I would be honored. Thank you so much again for joining us. Um, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you to Jen Verdelin for talking to us. You can find links to everything she's done on our website, SciNight.com. If you want to follow me, Go to Twitter. I am at James underscore Reed 3. Steffi, where can everyone find you? You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem. And occasionally I'll post pictures from the top of the research nuclear reactor like I did this week. Yes. Jason, where can everyone find you? You can find me on Twitter at OrganJM. And if you want to follow the Science Night podcast, go to at Science Night One, and you can find all of our other social media feeds on our website, as well as past episodes and show notes at SciNight.com. That is S-C-I-N-I-G-H-T.com. That is going to do it for this episode and for this year. We will be back with a fresh episode and loads of new scientists talking about their work in 2022. And until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. So is that why it's called the Gross Lab? Uh, <laughs> somewhat. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, do you want the real answer? Yeah, because... I do. That too. Because it's just not mi microscopic. It's gross oh. anatomy. <laughs> it's large. Oh, That's there we right. go. Yep. <laughs> I, I didn't know. I didn't know if you were. I was like, I oh no, are we doing time. that thing where we make the joke and she actually wants to know things? Uh, <laughs> yeah, here we are. That's right. You say it, and James and I were like, yeah, ha ha ha. <laughs>